Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. So we have been working our way through Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, and particularly we've been thinking about this section on the Christian life. Uh, it's a little mini treatise within the Institutes as a whole uh, in book three, uh, chapters uh, six through ten. And uh, last week we finished chapter seven, uh, which was about uh, what Calvin calls self-denial, denying ourselves. And this week we turn to the start of chapter eight. We're going to work our way through the first few sections of this. Uh, it should be 20, 30 minutes or so. And as ever, my plan is just to read a few sections to lead you through the logic of what Calvin has to say. And I hope that it will have the effect, as I, I hope and pray in previous uh, episodes in this series, will it'll have the effect of giving us a theologically grounded way of thinking about godliness in the broadest possible terms, not so much thinking about specific details in relation to particular issues, but tackling the whole swathe of issues which are part of what it means to live a life that is like Christ. And just before jumping in again, um, it's that living a life like Christ which really is in focus here. Let me just zoom out one more time and um, give you a sense of where this comes from in Calvin's overall picture of Christian soteriology or doctrine of salvation and and in particular uh, how it's um, expressed in Paul's theology uh, and how Calvin develops it. You recall that, um, take uh, Mark's gospel as an example, and Mark's gospel breaks uh, into roughly two parts. I mean, you could break it down in different ways than that, but um, it's helpful to, to recognize a kind of hinge or turning point in chapter eight, when uh, after seven and a half chapters of Jesus' ministry and teaching and miracles, all of which are designed to show that he is the Christ, the Messiah, Israel's king and savior, and therefore the savior of the whole world. Jesus has that conversation with his disciples in which case, in which he says, so who do people say that I am? And uh, a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of his disciples come up with different questions. You know, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets, some say John the Baptist has come back to life. And then Jesus turns to them and says, well, what about you guys? Who do you say that I am? And Peter rightly says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And so you've got dramatized up to that moment in Mark's gospel, um, the sense of, okay, this is what you're supposed to figure it out by now. From what Jesus has done, you're supposed to have realized he's the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Mark remarks that Jesus then began to teach them something else, that the Christ must suffer and be rejected and be persecuted and that he must be killed and on the third day rise from the dead. And at that point, um, Peter objects, uh, no doubt fearing that his own prospects would look a little bit bleak if his friend and leader and king was going to suffer in that way. And Jesus turns to him and rebukes him. Get behind me, Satan, he says. Um, you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. It's the things of God that Jesus has in mind. And this fear of persecution and Christ-like suffering is uh, satanic. And it's the things of men. And then what Jesus does is very striking. He then turns to the crowd and generalizes the teaching that he's about to give, where he says, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And you recognize, I'm sure, in what Jesus says, the chapters of Calvin's Institutes here, particularly chapters seven and eight. Deny himself, chapter seven. Take up his cross, chapter eight. And what Jesus is saying is that what it means to be a believer in him, what it means to follow Christ, is to follow his path, 
you can't be in union with Christ, walking with him down the way, so to speak, the way being one of those early descriptions and metaphors for, for the Christian movement. They were called the followers of the way. You can't be walking with Jesus along the road, arm in arm with him, so to speak, him leading you, him with you, unless you're following his way. It just stands to reason. And so you've got to deny yourself. You've got to make yourself less and recognize that in your accounting, others should be more. And that's what Calvin uh, expounds in chapter seven. And you've got to carry your cross like Jesus carried his. And that's what Calvin expounds in chapter eight. So this really is a, it's not uh, just this stuff is an add-on to what it means to be saved. I was talking about this with some of our uh, young people here at All Saints um, in the Bible and theology classes, where we've got some ninth and 10th graders who are working through the whole of Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. They're doing a fantastic job of really getting to grips with uh, this complex and demanding theological material. They're reading chunks and we're, we're meeting twice a week for an hour, 45 minutes or so, uh, to talk about it. Um, and uh, one of them pointed out at the end of section one, which we'll get to in a moment, they said, um, by communion with him, that is, by our communion with Christ, our union with him, the very sufferings themselves not only become blessed to us, but also help much in promoting our salvation. It's very intriguing. What Calvin is going to be talking about in this section, the take up your cross, is not simply what we must be ready to do as a response to Christ's saving work in us. It is that. We are positionally transformed. We are united with Christ. We are adopted as sons and male and female, sons of God through Christ. We are forgiven and justified, and we respond to that in these ways. But it's more than that. Carrying the cross is constitutive of our salvation. It's what it means to be saved. To be saved means to embrace this life of walking along the way with Jesus. And Jesus walked the path in which he carried the cross. And so that's what we must do too. Again, we discussed in that um, Bible and theology class just this last week, um, Joseph of Arimathea, the, the man who was grabbed by the Romans and made to carry Jesus' cross when Jesus stumbled and was unable to carry it anymore. I mean, what are the Romans going to do? Carry it themselves? Don't think so. Call off the crucifixion? No. Well, they've got somebody else to carry it. So they grabbed this guy, Joseph, and made him carry the cross. And there you've got a picture, again, dramatized in the events of Jesus' life and leading up to his death, of what it is for a disciple to be a disciple of Jesus. You carry the cross. In this case, it's actually the cross that Jesus bore. So with all that in the background, what you start to see is um, Calvin's writing here really is drawing uh, on uh, aspects of Christian theology and Christian teaching, which are they're not peripheral. Uh, and he's showing that godliness is not peripheral. It's not optional extra for super keen Christians. The pursuit of this kind of Christ-likeness is what it means to be a follower of Christ. So with that, slightly longer than usual introduction, let me just um, jump in. And as usual, I'm going to read a few sections. We'll try and get to section five or maybe section six um, of chapter eight in the next 20 minutes or so. So here goes. It behooves the godly mind, Calvin says, to climb still higher to the height to which Jesus calls his disciples that each must bear his own cross. Recognize the echo of Mark 8. For whomever the Lord has adopted and deemed worthy of his fellowship ought to prepare themselves for a hard, toilsome and unquiet life crammed with very many and various kinds of evil. It is the heavenly father's will thus to exercise them so as to put his own children to a definite test. Beginning with Christ, his firstborn, he follows this plan with all his children. That last phrase is really striking, isn't it? 
This is what God the Father did with Jesus, his firstborn son. This is what he'll do with all of us. Which calls to mind a couple of thoughts. First is, well, this is evidence of our being united with Christ. The fact that we are to expect and will experience um, at times what Calvin describes as hard, toilsome, unquiet experiences of life. This is what God does with those he loves. Think of what the author to the Hebrews writes. God disciplines everyone he receives as a son and will come to the father's discipline in a few sections time. It also is worth uh, noting that uh, Calvin's experience in 16th century Geneva and our experience in the modern West or the modern world, most parts of the modern world, I don't know where all of you are who are watching this, but those those of us who have the, the good fortune to live in um, the Western world um, are mostly uh, or have for quite a long time mostly been preserved from the kind of hostility that uh, Jesus and his disciples in the early church experienced, at least at the hands of the civil authorities and those who were opposed to the gospel. Of course, various uh, shifts in direction in public policy and in the political life of America and um, various parts of Europe suggest that that change, that that might be coming to an end sometime soon, or at least that the, the winds are blowing in a different direction. And perhaps there'll come a day quite soon when we need to learn more directly some of the lessons from our Christian brothers and sisters in other parts of the world today or in other parts of history where they've had to experience um, hard, toilsome and unquiet lives at the hands of secular authorities opposed to Christ. But that toilsome and unquiet life could also arise from other factors, you know, illness, bereavement, uh, various tragedies from which even we in the prosperous West are not entirely secluded. And all of this, Calvin is going to be telling us, uh, comes under the heading of the sufferings which constitute the cross we carry, and we're to carry it in a Christ-like way. Um, to put it another way, the cross that Jesus bore was not just the penal suffering of um, his execution, but all of the experiences of living in a fallen and sinful world, including illness and being betrayed by his friends and all these kinds of things which many people have experienced throughout the ages. Calvin goes on to say that, to speak the truth, while he dwelt on earth, he was not only tried by a perpetual cross, but his whole life was nothing but a sort of perpetual cross. The apostle notes the reason. It was it behooved him to learn obedience through what he suffered, quoting Hebrews 5.8. And that's part of the picture here. The obedience through suffering hardship in God's province was used by God the Father in Christ's life to bring him to maturity and is used for the same purpose in ours. In Christ's case, it was not sinful immaturity. It was sinless immaturity to maturity. Christ was born as a baby and grew up as a child and he had to learn the path of obedience. This is an unfamiliar thought to many of us. But it's true, well, while it's true, of course, that Jesus was never ungodly, it is true that he was once a child. And he grew into mature, godly manhood from mature god from immature, godly childhood. Um, he had all the uh, analogous kinds of experiences to what we experience. He's tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. So he knows what it's like to be 12 years old. He knows what it's like to go through puberty. He knows what it's like to have teenage friends who let you down. He knows what it's like to be a young man. He knows what it's like to experience all these different kinds of things. And all these 
He knows what it's like to be sick and ill and hungry and alone, uh, when really what you want is to be uh, warm and well-fed and with your friends. And so in all these different ways, the father was exposing his beloved son to a, a sort of perpetual cross, Calvin knows, and he does the same with us for the same reason, or at least for a, a closely connected reason, to bring us to maturity. Now, uh, Calvin has many different ways of expressing this. Again, in section one, a great comfort comes to us. We share Christ's sufferings in order that as he has passed from a labyrinth of all evils into heavenly glory, we may in like manner be led through various tribulations to the same glory. The path to glory is always the path of the cross. And that's the hope and the comfort that we have, that we're following the path of Christ. And this is worth reflecting on for a second. It means that suffering is not meaningless. Uh, many, many times you will have spoken to people, very likely, I've certainly spoken to people, like every pastor has spoken to people, who are suffering greatly. And part of the challenge when you're experiencing hardship, whether it's the, the tragedy of the loss of a child or illness or unemployment or whatever it is, is to realize that our, our instincts tell us that what's the point? What's the reason for this? And we People cry out, why is this happening to me? Well, the assurance of um, the scriptures, which Calvin is highlighting here, is that there is a reason for this. This is not pointless suffering. God is using this. This is the labyrinth through which he's leading us from this life now to heavenly glory, just as Jesus was led through such a labyrinth. So that takes us, that's end of section one. Um, section two, uh, Calvin expands a little further, and in sections three and four, on the, quote, many reasons why we must pass our lives under a continual cross. So what are the specific things that God might be doing in us? God's certainly doing something to bring us to maturity, but what exactly? Well, we'll read on and, um, and see what we discover. This is still section two. First, as we are by nature too inclined to attribute everything to our flesh, unless our feebleness be shown, as it were, to our eyes, we readily esteem our virtue above its due measure. And we do not doubt, whatever happens, that against all difficulties it will remain unbroken and unconquered. Hence we are lifted up into stupid and empty confidence in the flesh. And relying on it, we are then insolently proud against God himself, as if our own powers were sufficient without his grace. Calvin is drawing attention to the temptation to give ourselves credit for our natural or learned talents when things are good. How is God going to shatter this insolence and pride? It's not an appropriate attitude for creatures made by God and recreated in Christ's image to have this idea that we are somehow something special. You are something special. We all are something special, but not because of you being something special, but because of God's grace. And one of the problems is that whenever God is gracious and kind to us in giving us, I don't know, gifts or talents or abilities or resources we can too easily take the credit for all that ourselves and neglect thankfulness to him and humility so what does god do with this pride and arrogance calvin continues he that's god can best restrain this arrogance when he proves to us by experience not only the great incapacity but also the frailty under which we labor Therefore, he afflicts us either with disgrace or poverty or bereavement or disease or other calamities. 
Utterly unequal to bearing these insofar as they touch us, we soon succumb to them. Thus humbled, we learn to call upon his power, which alone makes us stand fast under the weight of afflictions. You see what he's saying, can't you? His point is that the Lord loves us so much that he doesn't want to labor, want us to labor under this delusion that we ourselves are something special. And so he'll afflict us with lack of capacity. Uh, so that we call upon him. He'll afflict us with pain and hardship so that we call upon him, so that we learn through sometimes bitter and painful experience that the good things we have are God's answers to our cries for help. Uh, He doesn't want us to keep imagining that we're really something special, but rather to realize that he is somebody gracious. And so just think back to Times in your life, perhaps, where you felt, I don't know, out of depth, completely beyond your capacity in some work context or in relation to your family. Maybe the first child you had or um, the first real challenge you had academically at school or the first time you were really thrown in the deep end at work or some other situation you found yourself in. And perhaps you were driven to pray more earnestly than you had done for a while. And if things worked out well, and I hope they did, and I pray that they did, But if things worked out well, you see you're less likely to attribute it to your own wisdom or strength or capacity or what a great mum I am or what a great student I am or what a great employee I am because you recall being cast upon the living God. Of course, how quickly we forget and therefore how quickly we need reminding again. And so the Lord keeps us humble by bringing our lives under this perpetual cross that Calvin has spoken about. So. Again, you've got uh, a little more of the same kind of explanation in um, uh, uh, later down this section. He, uh, Calvin points out that even David, the great King David, was guilty of this kind of um, presumption and complacency. Uh, I'll just read a short section about that. This complacency, that is the Im- imagination that we're really so significant or that we can handle things ourselves, even stole upon David. In my tranquility, I said, I shall never be moved. O Jehovah, by thy favour thou hadst established strength for my mountain. Thou didst hide thy face, I was dismayed. Psalm 30, verses 6 and 7. And Calvin explains that in his prosperity, David's senses had been so benumbed with sluggishness that neglecting God's grace upon which he ought to have depended, he relied upon himself and promised himself he could stand fast. And God loves David and God loves us enough to make sure that that kind of foolishness doesn't continue. So that's section two. Section three, um, Calvin starts uh, a short mini section, sections three, four, five, and six, uh, in which he first calls attention to to some other scriptural texts which say the same kind of thing. And it's just worth pointing out where these are. For example, Romans 5, tribulations produce patience, and patience produce tried character. That God has promised to be with believers in tribulation, they experience to be true. While supported by his hand, they patiently endure, an endurance quite unattainable by their own effort. The saints, therefore, through forbearance, experience the fact that God, when there is a need, provides the assistance that he has promised. And I can say, just in my own life and the life of my family in the last just over a year or so, we've uh, had one or two uh, extended experiences and rather intense moments where we have realized with increasing clarity that we are way beyond our capacity to fix the situation we're in. Those of you who are all saints and uh, 
Uh, maybe one or two other friends will know what I'm referring to and I won't bore you with it here. But suffice it to say that um, we perhaps prayed like we hadn't done for a while. And we really did come to see God's astonishing grace to us personally as a family. And I hope and trust to other folks here who we're now able to be with and to uh, serve in the church alongside. Um, it's been a huge blessing in a sense that we had that extended experience of uncertainty and anxiety because it taught us a whole bunch of things about our need to depend on God that we needed to learn again and again and again and again. And so well, here we are still trying to learn it. Section four, the Lord also has another purpose for afflicting his people, to test their patience and to instruct them to obedience. It's interesting. It looks like on the one hand, it overlaps with what Calvin said before, but it seems that um, he's saying something a little bit different. Let me read uh, another couple of sentences to you, um, and I'll show you what I mean. And this is something, again, which the uh, ninth and 10th graders drew attention to, uh, one young lady in particular, and um, uh, it's very striking once you realize what Calvin's saying. Here goes. It so pleases God by unmistakable proofs to make manifest and clear the graces which he has conferred upon the saints, that these may not lie idle, hidden within. Therefore, by bringing into the open the power and constancy to forbear, with which he has endowed his servants, he is said to test their patience. The point that um, my students uh, pointed out here is, it seems that Calvin is saying that it's not just that God gives us the gifts of godliness and forbearance and patience and character through these hardships of carrying the cross. It is rather that he has already given those things to us. They're within us, buried deep down within us, and the experience of hardship brings them to the surface. Now, at one level, you might say it amounts to the same thing. You know, the hardships bring these things out, so we display them. But the difference is quite significant. What the difference means is that you are already renewed in Christ. You are already a godly man. You are already a patient woman. You are already sanctified by the Spirit of Christ, and so on and so forth. And if you start thinking in these terms, you recognize those uh, affirmations as biblical affirmations. Scripture does not say, well, you're really nothing in Christ and you've got to become something. Scripture doesn't say you're really unclean and impure in Christ and you need to start becoming clean and pure. What scripture says is that you've been sanctified. You are righteous. You died to sin. And then it says, don't live in it anymore. In other words, we're to live out externally, so to speak, what God has already placed within us. God has placed maturity and godliness and grace and patience and kindness within us. It's there. It's just buried so deep that it's hardly seen and never sees the light of day. And these experiences draw it out. And Calvin then, in the way that he expresses it, the, the detail of the phrasing that he uses is calling attention to the fact that we are positionally and actually existentially transformed. And what needs to happen is that existential transformation works its way out. To put this in more basic and obvious terms, without wishing to sound like some kind of self-help guru, you can do it. If you've just had your first child and you're feeling overwhelmed, God has placed within you already the capacity to be a great mum, to be a great dad. If you just got married and you're thinking, goodness gracious, here's a bunch of opportunities for growth in godliness that I hadn't anticipated. God has placed within you the capacity to live 
as a great husband, a great father. If you've just become sick, or if you're still sick after nine or 10 or 12 months and you feel beyond your limits, no, no, no. God has placed within you the capacity to be faithful and to continue to testify to his grace, even in that unimaginable hardship. If you're unemployed and have been for a long time and you think, how long is this going to go on for? I don't think I can cope much longer. Mm, you can, you can. God has placed within you those capacities. You're one with Christ. What are you going to do? Doubt him? Christ is all sufficient and you have Christ. And what these circumstances, all of them, many more besides, are doing is bringing to the surface what you are. It's a subtle point, but once you start realising it like that, you start to see that it is quite significant. Calvin, later in the same section, speaks of God stirring up those virtues which he has conferred upon his believers in order that they may not be hidden in obscurity. So I said to the students the other day, I don't want to hear any more of this stuff about, oh, I can't really do this, that and the other. I'm not really a very good student. I'm not really able to concentrate. I'm not really able to work hard. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. God has placed within you the capacity to be a hardworking and godly and faithful student and son or daughter and whatever else it is. So get to it. Let's see those virtues stirred up and manifest on the outside, which God has already placed within. Another young lady in the class um, uh, wanted to talk about section five, which speaks of the cross as medicine. And um, uh, really this uh, section uh, picks up um, a lot of the themes of the previous sections and um, uh, applies the, the, the imagery of medicine uh, to what God is doing. Um, and just one of the um, uh, additional insights in this section is that um, Calvin uses this set of images to highlight the differences between us. Different people need different medicine, in other words. Calvin writes, quote, this he does in various ways in accordance with what is healthful for each man. Not all of us suffer in equal degree from the same diseases or on that account need the same harsh cure. From this it is seen that some are tried by one kind of cross, others by another. But since the heavenly physician, you see the reason why the medicine imagery is used, God is the great physician, treats some more gently but cleanses others by harsher remedies. While he wills to provide for the health of all, yet he leaves no one free and untouched because he knows that all, to a man, are diseased. So in other words, we've all got something. We've all got some rough edges that need knocking off. We've all got some aspects of our character that need refining, something about us which is immature and needs to grow up. And the Lord knows what medicine we need. And so he gives it to us. That then leads to section six, which is the last one we'll look at just for a couple of minutes. Um, we've thought about how the Lord uses these painful circumstances that he brings upon us, the crosses that we bear, to increase our maturity. But what about dealing with our ungodliness? How does God respond to actual sinfulness in us? And sometimes these circumstances are that kind of loving fatherly chastisement is the subject, the heading in section six. I'll read a sentence or two and then you'll see what I mean. Besides this, it is needful that our most merciful father should not only anticipate our weakness, that is our natural incapacity, we need to grow up, but also often correct past transgressions, that is our moral failings, our sins, so that he may keep us in lawful obedience to himself. 
Accordingly, whenever we are afflicted, remembrance of our past life ought immediately to come to mind. And this is intriguing because, of course, there have been and still are many people uh, in the church who are very quick to draw this conclusion. If you're suffering, it must be because you've sinned. And of course, scripture doesn't teach that. And Calvin's not teaching it here. On the occasions when Jesus had an opportunity to affirm that kind of thing, he specifically uh, disavowed it. Think of the man born blind in John 9 or uh, the, the conversation about the tower in Siloam and the, the people who were killed while sacrificing um, uh, by Pilate and his soldiers. Uh, but nonetheless, even though we can't make this kind of one-to-one equation between, oh, I'm suffering, therefore I must have sinned, nonetheless, Calvin wants to say, we ought to think back over our past life and tentatively consider what it is that God might be teaching us. In other words, here's another way in which suffering is not purposeless. Sometimes our loving Heavenly Father disciplines and chastises us for the same reason that you, if you're a parent and a godly one, discipline and chastise your own children. Not just so they can grow up, you give them difficult things to do, and they've got to dig the backyard so they learn that you need to work in order to make the place look pretty. But sometimes if they've stepped out of line, then they need to be disciplined. And you do so if you love them, because that's what a loving father does for his children. And so Calvin says, whenever we are afflicted, remembrance of our past life ought immediately to come to mind. So we shall doubtless find that we have committed something deserving this sort of chastisement. We'll have done something. And I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet. I'm not encouraging you automatically connect to connect what you've done to some particular circumstance. But we do need to take seriously the fact that sin really matters to God enough that he wants to train us out of it. And sometimes he uses suffering to do so. At this point, of course, our experience of the cross departs somewhat from Jesus's experience of the cross. He didn't commit sins which he needed to experience chastisement in order to renounce. His experience of the cross was, if anything to do with sins, which it was, it was other people's sins. Of course, that's the love of Christ being manifest, that he will experience not fatherly chastisement, but the Father's wrath in our place because he loves us. And so that brings us to the end of the first half of chapter 8. We will um, pick up from section 7 next time. Um, But I hope this is uh, helpful. I hope it continues to be as we're uh, following the logic of Calvin's patient and thoughtful development of this theme. What are the theological structures that ought to undergird undergird our pursuit of godliness? If you're really serious about godliness, then I commend this to you. And I hope these podcasts are helpful in helping you navigate through it. I think that'll do us for now. Uh, Lord bless you and see you next time. Bye for now.